Hello, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Tevi Troy. I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and we're here, as always, to talk about new books in public policy. Today, we're going to interview Dan Dresner. He is a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And today, the book we're going to discuss is Theories of International Politics and Zombies. And I know some of the people have asked questions or made comments on the podcast comment channel, and you can do this through Facebook or iTunes, and they've said that some of the questions haven't been tough enough on this podcast on New Books and Public Policy. So today, expect Dan Dresner to get some really tough questions about how international politics and zombies relate. Hello, here we are with Dan Dresner, the author of Theories of International Politics, wait for it, and Zombies. Dan is a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and I actually met him at the Green Room at Fox. We were both about to go on the air. Don't hold that against us. We were both about to go on the air. We were on the same panel together. And I said, wow, this is a really interesting book. I said, have you a really interesting guy. I said, have you written a book? And he said, I have. And he shared with me a copy of Theories of International Politics and Zombies. I read it that day on the bus back to D.C. And I said, I'd, if I ever have a podcast, I'd like to have him on. Uh, fortunately, I do now have a podcast, New Books and Public Policy, to which you are listening. And uh, without further ado, let's welcome Dan to the program. Hey, Dan. Hey, Tevi, thanks a lot for having me. I distinctly remember that Fox News green room, as I believe you required less makeup than I did. <laughs> yes, but you looked better when the process was over, I would say. Uh, <laughs> so, Dan, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself? I, uh, we have a guy here at Hudson Institute who's uh, in his 20s, and he said when he graduated Tufts, um, you were one of the prominent professors there. And when I met you, you seemed relatively young. So how did you get to be prominent professor at Tufts at such a young age? I have a lot of blackmail material on a lot of uh, senior academics. No, um, uh, I let's see. My background is, is that I started off uh, getting a PhD in economics at Stanford. Uh, I switched over to political science because I thought it was more interesting. Um, so I've written about uh, my, my normal area of expertise is the global political economy. So I've published books on use of economic sanctions in world politics and international regulatory regimes. Um, but after I graduated Stanford, I taught at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, I then taught at the University of uh, Chicago. Um, after leaving Chicago, Fletcher came calling, and so I've been here since 2006. So this is my fifth year at uh, Fletcher. Uh, so I'm flattered here that I was considered a big professor uh, when I was hired. Um, you said Fletcher came calling. I mean, is it like being capped for a secret society when uh, you get to as prestigious as school as Fletcher? Well, I mean, it's a, I guess at the level of senior ac academia, yeah. I mean, what, what often happens is, is that places will go looking for someone who, you know, fits all of their various needs. Um, in the case of Fletcher, when they were calling me, they needed someone to sort of do meat and potatoes international relations theory, for lack of a way of putting it. And they had a, couple, a hard time filling the spot. Um, and uh, my wife, having been a graduate of Brandeis, was very enamored with the idea of returning to the Boston area. Uh, so that worked out relatively well for us. Great. And do you want to say anything about your wife or give her a shout-out? Uh, I will always give a shout-out to my wife, Erica, as she uh, actually thought the zombie book was a good idea, um, which is not something that uh, all wives necessarily would have thought. Um, and she is, in, uh, I think, I, as I said in the acknowledgments, uh, you know, she, she reacted to this uh, idea. She's reacted to almost all of my crazy ideas for the last 10 years uh, with a mixture of amusement and tolerance. Before we talk a little bit about how you came to write the book, but you, you, can you say that I mean, before Zombies, you did write a couple of books that were, shall we say, less tongue-in-cheek? 
Yes. No. I've I've written um, I've written three other books. Uh, one was called The Sanctions Paradox, uh, which looked at the dynamics of economic coercion in world politics. Uh, one was called U.S. Trade Strategy: Free versus Fair, which uh, was something commissioned by the Council on Foreign Relations, and basically looked at the various options available to U.S. Uh, trade policy um, circa 2006. And then I wrote All Politics Is Global which basically asked under what circumstances in a globalized world economy would you actually see the promulgation of global rules that would actually be adhered to um, and under what circumstances they wouldn't be. I've also you know, published a, a fair number of peer-reviewed articles. Uh, the most prominent recent one was on whether or not uh, China's uh, holdings of U.S. debt actually translate into any foreign policy leverage. Uh, my quick answer is no. Did any of these other books include space aliens, ghosts, vampires, or werewolves? No, none of them did, although I do remember in the sanctions paradox, I actually had a footnote referencing Air Force One, the movie, uh, with, with Harrison Ford and Glenn Close. And I nearly put a mention in of uh, the first of the new Star Wars trilogy, The Phantom Menace, because if you remember, when The Phantom Menace opens, you know, that the crawl that all the Star Wars movies has, uh, it starts with sanctions. So right, I thought the Trade was, Federation. Exactly. So I thought that was kind of cool, and I thought I would put that in. Um, but the movie was not that good, so I figured in the end I chose not to do it. I would agree that Air Force One was a much better film and more worthy <laughs> of being in your footnotes. Exactly. So, so tell us how you came to write this book. Obviously, you have an affinity for pop culture, but also international relations. This is a serious professor of a serious school. How did you get to write a book? And you know, you'll be able to see it up on the website. But the um, the words "theories of international politics" are sort of in normal font, and then "and zombies" looks like it's written in blood scrawl. <laughs> which was, in fact, my idea. I, I, Princeton executed it brilliantly, uh, but I did want the, the title to sort of look... The title is self-explanatory, and, you know, it's actually one of those great covers where I, it really does attract eyeballs, which is wonderful. Um, the idea started, actually, it was not uh, one of my own ideas. or It, it, it started because in 2009, uh, a group of biomathematicians at Carleton University, uh, who normally focus on, you know, epidemic uh, epidemics and pandemics, wrote a sort of carefree little article for uh, for an edited volume uh, called When Zombies Attacked. It basically said, let's treat zombies like we would any other kind of disease vector or like a disease vector and model it and see whether or not, you know, what, what would happen in terms of population dynamics. Um, and they came to the same conclusion, frankly, as most of the zombie canon uh, did. And by zombie canon, I mean the sort of classic zombie movies that we can and, and books that we can think of like Max Brooks's World War Z or the George Romero uh, Living Dead franchise. Um, and uh, it, in the article came to the conclusion that, you know, unless the zombies were wiped out immediately, uh, human civilization as we know it would end. Um, and so this is one of those things that, that got a lot of attention, uh, you know, in, in the mainstream media. And so I read the article and, you know, the article was quite good, but there was no politics in it, and I was kind of surprised by that. There was no discussion of the extent to which different countries would respond differently, whether or not it would be easy or not for zombies to cross borders effortlessly. Um, and so I, I started thinking, well, what would different theories of international politics say about this? In fact, uh, the, the dead started rising from the grave. And so I wrote this up in a blog post. I blog at foreignpolicy.com. Um, and I, I wrote this up, and, and you know, if you remember at the time, uh, in 2009, there was a book that came out that was relatively popular called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Uh, so the title of that right, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting classic. Um, and uh, so I wrote a, a blog post with the title Theory of International Politics and Zombies. It's a play on Ken Waltz's book, Theory of International Politics, which is not terribly well-known uh, uh, 
you know, uh, and let's say inside the Bellwear policy circles, but among international relations scholars, it's one of the most widely cited books out there. Um, so, you know, I had some fun with this, and I, I riffed on the various theories, and, you know, I thought that was that. But what happened is that people started linking to the post, which was great. And then a couple of weeks later, I was at an academic conference, and I talked to quite a number of professors who basically told me that they thought the post was great because rather than getting, you know, trying to get uh, very abstract paradigms into the minds of 18-year-olds, you want to get them in, in, you want to teach them in such a way that they can actually really relate to them. Um, and while your average 18-year-old doesn't necessarily know a lot about, let's say, social constructivism or neoconservatism, they know zombies. Um, so this was a great way in which, as it turned out, your average 18-year-old could sort of learn about this. And once I thought about that, I realized that this was the opportunity to write a small book, uh, write a small pedagogical text, which uh, maybe would actually be assigned in some courses. So I pitched it to Princeton University Press. Uh, they were very interested, and uh, the rest is history. Well, when you say Princeton was very interested, I mean, no initial interest? Was it, I mean, they said, hey, this is a great idea, or did they say, whoa, Dan, this is a weird one? Or I mean, how did they react? <laughs> I mean, I, I published all politics as global with them, so I had I had a history with them. They knew uh, that I wasn't just some sort of quack coming off the street. And the other thing is they had published a, a few other books that I thought were in a similar sort of kindred spirit to what I wanted to do. Um, is, is this a PG-rated uh, podcast, or can I curse? Uh, we prefer you didn't. So okay, so I, I hope my kids will listen to this one day. The only thing I say that is that there's a very famous book by Harry Frankfurt called, and I'll shorten it, On BS. Okay. Uh, that they published, um, which which was a great big seller and also a very good essay. And they also published a small book by John Hulsman and Wes Mitchell called The Godfather Doctrine that looked at the Godfather movie as the source of three different, you know, foreign policy worldviews. So I figured that they might be interested in this. And uh, to his credit, Chuck Myers, who was my editor at Princeton, uh, immediately got what I was trying to do. And this also helps, by the way, I'm a, I'm a full professor at, at Fletcher. And, and uh, one of the... Tenure is a great thing, huh? Not just tenure, I'm full, which means I can't get promoted anymore, um, which means I really don't need to kiss up nearly as much as I used to. And so as a result, I just pitched this to them with the notion of either you're going to get this or you're not, and if you're not, I'm really not going to feel all that, you know, uh, sad about it. I'll just go somewhere else. And, but fortunately, they did get it, which was great. Now, you mentioned the Godfather books. Do, do you think that in the world of pop culture iconography, zombies have attained the same level as Godfather movies? I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, God, the, the Godfather films are one of those. Uh, the only part of the movie You've Got Mail I really liked was the notion that every man had always seen the Godfather films. And, you know, if you're watching television, you're just sort of clicking around and you come across either the Godfather part one or part two, that's where your, your remote stops. Must watch. Uh, what? It's must watch. Right. I mean, this is, and this is a fact, by the way, that irritates my wife no end. She actually has a theory that says that, you know, if you have at least basic cable, there must be a channel somewhere showing The Godfather, um, which is an interesting argument. But no, I don't think so. I mean, on the other hand, you know, zombies, I think, have a more passionate following. The Godfather is one of those movies, you know, and The Godfather Part II is one of those that, you know, it's part of your, your cultural education. You have to have seen it. So I think those generate, you know, Godfather references generate far more acknowledgement across a wider sphere of the public. On the other hand, the zombie devotees you don't want to mess with. They're they're really hardcore. You don't want to mess with the zombies either, I guess. Well, obviously, which is the point of the book. Um, so, you know, the, the the book basically takes a look at 
And, you know, it's written in, in, again, pardon the pun, and this is something I discovered writing this book. I don't like puns, but it is impossible to write about zombies without having puns in the, in the text. You just can't do it. Um, so I wrote this in a very deadpan way, which is to say that, you know, it, it, obviously it's intended to be funny, but that said, um, I only, and this was the advice that I, I got from uh, Chuck Myers, the only way that I could write this so that it was funny without being like joke in the ribs, dead corpse of Milton Berle coming back to haunt me funny, was to write it as if I was writing any other serious piece of scholarship. And so, you know, I'll defend every footnote and every citation that I've got in that book. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about the overall structure of the book and what you're trying to say in it? Sure. Well, the book is set up in, in a lot of ways like your traditional international relations uh, book, uh, particularly the academic kind, in that, you know, first I have to say, well, there's a problem going on here. What is the problem? Everyone's suddenly interested in zombies. Um, so then I, of course, have to review the literature, which is what you do in a good academic scholarly piece. Then you have to define what you mean. You have to define your terms. So what do I mean when I'm talking about a zombie? And then I have to posit what the various theories, you know, that I've got out there would predict. And that's where it looks more like textbooks, where I took different theories of international relations. So I look at, at uh, real, realism or realpolitik, um, liberal, uh, liberalism or neoliberal institutionalism, um, social constructivism, which is not probably as well-known outside academic circles, but is a relatively popular theory within the academy. Uh, neoconservatism, which is actually the reverse. There are not a lot of neocon scholars, but obviously neoconservatism has the virtue of, of being a paradigm that was actually tried at one point by uh, an administration. And then I look also at sort of domestic politics, bureaucratic politics, and uh, what are called first image or personal psychological responses to the undead. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, the book is, is hopefully uh, sort of presents each of these different approaches in a relatively clear and concise manner and then tests uh, these theories on two sources of data. Uh, the first would be sort of zombie-like uh, events, which would be natural disasters, catastrophes, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, etc. Et um, the second is uh, the zombie canon itself, which is do we see the kind of, you know, dynamics that realism or uh, constructivism would argue uh, actually work in things like George Romero movies or zombie novels and so forth. You know, it's it's interesting. The um, you, you talk about zombies as a uh, sort of a pandemic or a health threat, or, or maybe a, equivalent to a tsunami, which unfortunately we recently saw in Japan. But there's right. also kind of a uh, you know a, a malevolent actor aspect to it. So is, is is combating zombies like fighting a disease, like fighting a natural disaster, or like fighting a foreign army? I think the answer is is it depends. Well, first of all, it honestly does depend on what kind of zombie we're talking about. But second, I think, interestingly enough, it depends on what theory you think is right. Um, because you're right. It, you know, from a liberal perspective, zombies wind up being treated much like a pathogen or any other kind of, of you know, non-agentic act, you know, something that lacks agency. I mean, you can't negotiate or bargain uh, with the disease, and, and liberals would probably argue the same thing with zombies. On the other hand, you know, there are ways in which the other paradigms do treat zombies like an actor. Um, you know, neoconservatism, for example, I argue that, you know, would recognize that zombies are an existential threat to humanity, that zombies would hate us for our freedoms, uh, namely our freedom not to eat other people's brains. Or, you know, on the other hand, realism would look at zombies and think that eventually the rigors of anarchy would force the undead to eventually evolve to the point where there would not be that much distinction between zombie governments and human-led governments. Yeah, although there's not much uh, 
support material in the in the, the sources to suggest that zombies could organize in that way. Well, I would disagree. George Romero, you know, George Romero is the godfather of zombie cinema. And if you look at Romero's work, his zombies get more and more cognitively sophisticated over time until by Land of the Dead, which is his fourth movie, there is, in fact, a very clear hierarchical structure among the zombies. And they actually launch a relatively smart, you know, uh, attack plan and overcome Pittsburgh. Yes, but but not beyond, they're not beyond any goals other than eating brains, right? I mean, they... they they don't. They've not the evolved end, to benevolent goals, have they? Well, no. I mean, it's, it's not clear they have any uh, beneficial goals. On the other hand, it is clear that by the end of Land of the Dead, it almost seems like the zombies pretty much just want to sort of live and let live attitude among the remaining humans. Um, you know, that movie ends with sort of a, a sort of tacit acknowledgement between the sort of lead human and lead zombie character that they'll leave each other alone. Um, and this, in fact, you know, gives rise to one of the big mysteries about zombie. Uh, in zombie studies, which is whether or not zombies actually need to eat people or just want to eat people. Um, How much research did you have to do in the zombie oeuvre to be uh, sufficiently cognizant of what's going on there? I had to do one whole heck of a lot of research, actually, because as I said, this was sort of something I stumbled into. It's not like I was a huge fan of zombies before I wrote the uh, before I wrote the initial blog post. I'd seen a couple of the films. I think I'd seen Land of the Dead. I'd seen um, Shaun of the Dead. And I'd seen 28 Days Later. Uh, beyond that, I hadn't seen much, actually. You hadn't so, read World War Z? No, I had not even read World War Z when I, st- when I wrote that blog post. Um, I think your book almost can't be written without World War Z. I mean, because that right. brings it's it to a sort of international relations world, and it looks at how different countries uh, address the issue. I, I read the book, uh, amazingly enough, while I was Deputy Secretary at Health and Human Services, and I thought of it from the perspective of what policies we could initiate, not against zombies, but against various pathogens that are hard to control. Right. And I found that the section where he talks about the Israelis, because of their efforts in trying to prevent terrorists from entering the country, were the best at preventing zombies from entering the country. No, that's true. Uh, in some way, and I, I agree. I mean, I, I recommended Max Brooks's book to everyone who asked me about uh, my own. I think, in some ways, Max's book, if I were to retitle it, it would be theories of comparative politics and zombies, in the sense of he doesn't look as much at how the different states would interact with each other so much as how sort of domestically each state responds. And in some ways, that's the real strength of the book. That it, you know. The, the book Hopscotch is all over the globe, and you see, you know, all the ways in which these different countries respond, which is extremely interesting and obviously relevant to world politics. So you're right that I cited it uh, uh, a lot. But when I was prepping for the, you know, when I was uh, doing the research for the book, what happened is, is that I, you know, I sent the pitch to Princeton, and, and my decision was I was not going to do one iota of research on this until I actually had a hard advanced contract in my hands because I didn't want to waste too much time, you know watching the zombie flicks. And then once I got the, the contract, I started reading, I started reading World War Z and reading other zombie novels out there. And then usually starting around 10 o'clock at night, once my kids had gone to sleep, I would, you know, buy and or rent uh, various zombie films and catch up on them. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you mention your kid because I think you say in the beginning, um, the, 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 dedication, the dedication, that your son Sam thought this was way cooler than all your other books. Yes, but you have to realize that's a very low bar. I mean, you know, if you look at my other books, I think they're very, very interesting to foreign policy wonks and international relations scholars. But it's not like your average 10-year-old is terribly interested in either U.S. sanctions or U.S. or either economic sanctions or U.S. trade policy or, God forbid, international regulatory regimes. So really there was nowhere to go but up as far as he was concerned. And the fact that it was zombies he thought was pretty cool. 
And in fact, he dressed up as a zombie uh, with no prodding of mine, I would add. Uh, last Halloween, he said, I want to go as a zombie. And then you also say that your daughter, Lauren, reassured you that there were no zombies in the land. Would it ordinarily be the other way around that you reassure her? Uh, you know, my daughter is, is very uh, – she's just adorable. So, you know, when I explained this to her, I wasn't sure she really understood it initially. How old? Uh, you know, and, and, and she's not uh, – the funny thing is is that my daughter gets afraid of even uh, the slightest hint of, of problems in, like, a plot or, or a movie or something like that. Um, so, you know, zombie movies were way beyond her. But I think her response when I talked about zombies was like, oh, you know, it was like, oh, you know, it's like ghosts. That's silly. So she basically said, oh, daddy, there are no zombies in this land. And, and you know, I, I, I was just struck by how it, it was just a delightful turn of phrase. So I had to put that in the acknowledgement. It's very cute. Now, what's the, the reaction been to the book? I mean, do other international relations professors, and I picture people with uh, wire rim glasses and bow ties and um, pants that are a little too short, uh, do, do they all um, – they take you less seriously as a result, or are you a superstar for getting on TV to talk about zombies? Uh, there's a little bit of a disappointment, I think, among some of my friends. They they kind of thought I would, this was going to be getting on the Daily Show, and that hasn't happened yet. So you know, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll they see. did get you on New Books and Public Policy podcast, exactly, which is not insignificant, and I, I'm very appreciative of that. I think the fascinating thing about this is that I think the reaction has been fifty-fifty. Half the people I know, and I would note that almost entirely these are people under the age of forty. Um, think it's the greatest idea ever. They think it's a wonderful, you know, uh, sort of clever gimmick to uh, attract people. Uh, and then, you know, the, the rest of, of uh, the, the IR community, you know, is, was a little wary. I mean, I've actually had people, like, come up to me and say, I just don't get the zombies, um, which I find very amusing. And those um, people also under 40? Uh, some of them, yes. Uh, but mostly it, it, there is, I think, an age, uh, there is a demographic split that way. But the funny thing is, is that no matter what their reaction was, to that when I would first tell them what the idea was, when I then said that Princeton University Press was publishing it, regardless of their first reaction, their jaws would drop. They wanted um, to eat your brains, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> they were just sort of stunned that I got the, the sort of best IR press, uh, the, the best IR university press in the country to, to publish it. Um, and that said, I, I actually think the reaction has increasingly been positive. I was at um, the International Studies Association meetings uh, two weeks ago in Montreal, and there was a panel devoted to the the, uh, the book and, and responses from others. And, you know, this was standing room only, and it, it was a real lot of enthusiasm uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the panel on it. And I think the other thing is, is that in the end, book sales really do matter, and the book is sold uh, pretty well by academic standards. So that's also, I think, been a factor in terms of causing people to realize, hmm, maybe there's something here to, to think about. Well, hopefully we'll generate some more sales with this conversation today as well. Uh, From your lips to Amazon.com. Yes. And we will have a link up at the um, at the New Books and Public Policy podcast where you can purchase the book and you can also get Dan's bio and learn more about him. Uh, one of the things I found funniest about the book was the, uh, the the graphical representations, both the, the little cartoons you had, but also the uh, the charts, which you know people I think <laughs> the joke has to be explained a little bit. But international yeah. relations has been taken over by the quants, they're called the uh, the, the people who, who look into numbers and, and, uh, and numerical theories in, in international relations and political science. And uh, you, you have actually game theory charts about different right. reactions to zombies. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, sure. I mean, now, there were a lot of there were a lot of tropes in international relations uh, academic discourse that that I was really mocking um, in the book. And in that way, I, again, I, the book really works on two levels. For those people who don't, you know, are just sort of the average layman or your average eighteen year old, it's still pretty funny and it's still pretty clear. 
but basically the more international relations reading you've done, the funnier the book gets, I think, because you can tell what specific, you know, sort of pieces of jargon or turns of phrase or, as you say, charts I'm kind of mocking. So, for example, regardless about whether or not uh, people work within sort of what you would call formal modeling or game theory or not, almost all political science uh, articles or books have what are called two-by-two charts where you uh, you sort of say, well, if there's this variable and then there's this variable, you know, uh, and these variables are either high or low or something like that, you have four possible outcomes. Um, and, you know, I'm just as guilty of this. If you look at my previous books, I've had two-by-two two charts uh, in, in, all, in them at all. And so I was able to really mock that by having a two-by-two two chart in the zombie book where every single outcome was exactly the same, showing that, in fact, the variables themselves didn't matter. Um, and then, as you say, I also have some, some very simple game theory uh, in the book, and that, that's where I'm, I'm sort of mocking the, the kind of ways in which you would, you would treat uh, zombies as a, as a crude, rational actor. Um, and, you know, I've, I've got some hard data, but really I think the best thing in the book are the illustrations uh, by Anna Koretnikov, who uh, I didn't know before, I've never met, but uh, she did a great job of sort of putting onto paper, you know, the occasional sort of musings I had in my head about what should be written. Um, I, I thought she did a fantastic job. Now, is she a cartoonist who works with Princeton University Press, or I mean, what's her, how did she come to this project? She's actually uh, an undergraduate. Um, I'm not sure how Princeton found her, but uh, I knew they were. They wanted, you know, they, this is, they've been marketing this for a young audience, and I think uh, she had done some work with Princeton beforehand, um, but really got the project immediately. And again, as I said, the drawings are spectacular. Yeah, I, I want to talk about two of those drawings. I will mention sure. them and then ask you to uh, describe them a little more. But the, the, my yeah. first favorite is on page seven, where you see a kind of handsome, fanged teenager with uh, love signs all around him and teenage girls swooning about him next yeah. to a, an ugly, smelly zombie. And the caption says, zombies, in contrast to vampires, do not thrive in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, one of the problems, I, I, I immediately encountered an issue when I decided I wanted to write the book because I would tell people about this. And everyone kept coming back to me, what about vampires? Shouldn't you really talk about vampires? Because vampires are really hot. Um and I hadn't thought about that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I thought the zombies were enough. I didn't want to have to add vampires to the mix. I was going to make things needlessly complicated. And really, thank God for Twilight and the Twilight Saga for me, because it, it, the Twilight Saga, you know, sort of literally, uh, pardon the pun, defangs vampires so much, you know, makes them just, you know, teen uh, girl crush objects, that it was just easy for me to lampoon um Vampires is a real threat. Saying really, really, you know, this, this is what we're worried about—the hunky, uh, the hunky kid in uh, in high school. So I was able to point out that, you know, if you look at the traditional literature, and this is true, vampires never want to take over the world. Uh, they eventually get co-opted into existing power structures, so they don't represent the same kind of transgressive threat that zombies do. Um, and then, you know, obviously they they clearly survive and thrive in high schools, much like, by the way, you know, wizards do in in the Harry Potter universe and so forth. So. What I, what I wanted to do was I needed to sort of figure out why should I focus on zombies rather than these other threats. And I was able to, um, in, the, in just that chart, you know, or in just that drawing, sort of demonstrate the silliness of vampires in contrast to zombies. Um, the only regret I have about that is that I was not able to therefore include Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, in my analysis, which is just an awesome show and should be watched by everyone. Fair enough. Uh, another great picture is on page 44 where you have a zombie representative at the U.N. 
talking to other members of the United Nations, and she seems to be holding some kind of shoe. I guess it's a reference to uh, Khrushchev banging his shoe at the United Nations. Right, the reference, right. it was a sly reference to, to Khrushchev bagging the shoe. And I have to admit, that was Anna Kretnikov's idea. I, I, had the, I said I want an image of a, of a zombie addressing the UN Security Council. I hadn't thought about the shoe, but the moment I saw that drawing, I was... I was truly blown away by that. But my point there was is that, again, this is the sort of realist story, which is, you know, for zombies to survive, they would have to adapt to the rigors of anarchy, which would include things like defending your actions at the U.N. Security Council. Right. And, now, of course, Khrushchev uses his own shoe, but in that picture, there's almost this terrifying frisson that the shoe might have been from someone that the <laughs> zombie representative ate. Exactly. Yes, fair enough. Um, the, the cartoons are great. i got to just mention two more. One is on page yeah. 75 where you have a slacker kid playing a video game, and next to him on the couch is a slacker zombie, for want of a better word. And it says, the lifestyles of the college student and zombie are eerily similar. Right. Well, this was, this was a, an attempt to get at the, the argument in social constructivism. And what social constructivists like to argue is that, first, you know, shockingly, reality is socially constructed, but more importantly, that the real fundamental constraint on world politics is the power of norms, which is to say there's certain things that are considered taboo acts, which if done, the actors get ostracized, whereas if you, you know, manage to inculcate new norms and promote them, um, those can really constrain, you know, other actors. So, for example, the use of nuclear weapons nowadays is frowned upon for a whole variety of reasons, and, and they haven't been used since 1945, partially because of nuclear deterrence, no doubt, but another probable reason is that no state wants to be seen as the sort of bad actor that violates the, the taboo. So in the, in the book, I, I argued, well, you know, in a, if you have zombies out there, there are zombie norms, um, you know, sort of shuffling, moaning, eating people and so forth. They clearly contradict human norms. And the question I asked was, well, which norm, set of norms would win out? Partially it's a question of number, but it's also a question of the innate appeal of the norms. Now, you might think, well, you know, humans aren't going to want to eat other humans, that would presumably not be uh, terribly attractive. But there are other aspects of the zombie lifestyle that are, are somewhat more appealing. You know, uh, zombies very rarely, if ever, turn on each other. Uh, they're not really all that picky about personal hygiene or dress. You know, they'll, they'll go anywhere. They're, they're not going to criticize. Uh, they're completely non-discriminatory. They will eat anyone regardless of race, sex, gender preference, uh, religion, you name it. Um, and they're terrifically eco-friendly because they walk everywhere and only eat local organic produce. Um, so this pretty much meets, you know, the criteria of your sort of typical stereotypical college student, um, which are often thought to be the change agents of modern cultures. So if they were to actually embrace the zombie lifestyle, and after all, they, they play humans versus zombies an awful lot, um, then it, I, I really do think human norms would be under threat of being uh, swamped by zombie norms. Yeah, but, but of course they're completely focused on the mission and they never lose sight of their overall objective, which is in contrast to college students. That's true. That's true. It could be the case that college students originally embrace the zombie lifestyle to get bored with it then and try to reject it, but by that point it might be too late. You know, it could be an instance where, in fact, the, those norms have actually triumphed. So you're right, that could be an issue. Yeah, last cartoon I want to mention is on page 58. And you have a bunch of long-haired, tattooed young people who look like they could be at an anti-World Trade Organization meeting screaming right. in favor of zombie rights. And one of the women has a sign-up that says, my dad is a zombie and I love him. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Sure. Well, this was it, you know, in, the, in the chapter on liberalism where I said that you would, you know, presumably liberals would agree that killing the undead is a major global public good. And therefore, you would see the creation of a global counter-zombie regime, perhaps even the creation of a world zombie organization, 
designed to regulate and inhibit the spread of the undead. But just as surely as that regime would be created, there would be problems with it. There would be loopholes. Authoritarian countries might try to keep their zombie problem a secret. Uh, developing countries might simply not be able to honor the sort of rules that prevent the spread of the undead. But perhaps the biggest problem would be global civil society, because just as surely as you would see the creation of a global counter-zombie regime, you would start seeing the emergence of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, dedicated to undead rights. You would probably see Zombies Without Borders, uh, Zombie Rights Watch, Zombaid, People for the Ethical Treatment of Zombies. Um, and so that, that, that illustration obviously perfectly captured the kind of placards and norms and, and you know, beliefs that uh, global civil society would probably carry forward. And those would inevitably probably, you know, cause some difficulties with the implementation of a successful global, global counter-zombie regime. Right, and that's why I found the chapter on the neoconservatives so funny. I mean, you argue that they would try to obliterate the zombies, which is probably the, the right call, given what the yes. game theory notions say what would happen if the zombies were allowed to proliferate. But they would be fought by all of these sort of long-haired, tattooed hippie types who are saying, no, you can't hurt the zombies. Right. Uh, you know, that would certainly happen. I mean, the, the, the flaw in the neocon uh, uh, policy recommendations, which I, I argued there, was that they would probably not stop with the zombies, that, you know, neoconservatives generally like to talk about how all of sort of America's or democracy's adversaries clearly must be working together. So they would posit that an axis of evil dead must exist, in which the zombies must be getting help from other countries out there like Russia, China, Iran, you know, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Hamas, you name it. Um, and so as a result, that would probably make coalition warfare somewhat difficult. Um, and, and, you know, there would be other issues, which is, you know, the, the neocons' belief in the revolution in military affairs might lead to too light of a footprint in terms of trying to deal with the zombies. And so as a result, you would have a very bloody insurgency on your hands in all likelihood. That's sort of, you mean, the, the Don Rumsfeld meaning approach of going in light and cheap? Exactly. Run. The notion that, you know, air power plus elite forces plus local uh, insurgents would somehow shock and awe the zombies into uh, submission. And this, of course, leads to one of the great lines from uh, Max Brooks's book, uh, which was written in 2006, where he says, what if, you know, what if your enemy cannot be shocked and awed? Not just, you know, uh, won't be, but biologically cannot be so shocked and awed. Um, and that's why the zombies are such an interesting adversary that way. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that's referring to the, the famous battle in New Jersey in the Max Brooks book where... I think it's Yonkers, actually. Yeah, it's the battle yeah, of Yonkers. Yes, right, that's right. The battle of Yonkers where the American army just gets their their butts handed to them because right. they just have no capacity to deal with this, this force that doesn't mind uh, losing people and just never stops no matter how much shock and awe and how many missiles and how many fancy weapons you have. Right, and it's act that's actually, I mean, I quote that uh, that scene particular at length in the section on bureaucratic politics because it demonstrates the ways in which, in all likelihood, the sort of national security bureaucracies uh, would probably screw up in their first response to the zombies, um, which is to say that, you know, what bureaucracies, all bureaucracies anywhere do is create standard operating procedures to try to sort of make sense of the, the cognitive complexity of the world. Um, and by definition, however, you know, zombies are a pretty non-standard outcome. So presumably the first set of responses would work horribly. And you see that in the Battle of Yonkers where, you know, instead of taking positions high up where the zombies can't get them, you know, they have fixed ground positions and, uh, you know, they're all wearing body armor, which doesn't really do them any good because it's not like the enemy is firing back necessarily. Um, and one of the good things, again, one, I think one of the best aspects of Brooks's book is it shows how, in fact, the U.S. military evolves over time, that it learns to adapt very quickly to the new enemy 
and come up with new uh, strategies and tactics to defeat them. Now, right now, we're obviously going and engaged in the, a uh, kinetic military action, I guess, in, in Libya. Um, how do you think President Obama would deal with a zombie attack based on what we've seen from his foreign policy responses thus far? Well, let's see. I, I think, you know, you see a few things. First of all, they'd be a little slow in responding. I mean, the, the administration has, I think, you know, uh, uh, done reasonably well in foreign policy. But when crises emerge, they're, they're actually pretty slow on the draw. I think because, you know, Obama likes to, to stress deliberation and so forth. This is the dithering um, criticism that I guess the dithering is somewhat exaggerated, but I do think they were, I, I think they were slow. They're always slow off the mark. Um, but that said, very often they, they, you know, they get the, the end policy right. I and mean, I think Egypt, for example, they weren't entirely sure initially how to respond, but in the end, I think they played that pretty well. Um, so that's, that's issue one. I think the second problem is, is that Obama would probably try to stress to Americans not to panic. Um, you know, this is sort of the no drama Obama, uh, uh, school of thought. And, you know, this, this actually dovetails nice, nicely with the, uh, domestic politics, uh, uh, responses. Um, and that, uh, you know, very often what you have in a crisis like this is a sort of rally around the flag, uh, uh, situation where in a crisis, people will naturally sort of support the leader, uh, regardless of, of what actual policies they pursue. Um, think about George W. Bush right after 9-11, where, you know, before 9 the 9-11 attacks, his popularity rating, I think, was about 50 percent. Uh, within a month of the 9-11 attacks, his, his popularity ratings had gone up to 90 percent. Um, so there would be some initial support for the administration. But if the administration screwed up, and as I said before, any, I think any administration would screw up because their bureaucracies wouldn't get things right, um, you would likely have, uh, you know, a fall in popularity and a greater suspicion of what the government was actually going to do. Um, I just want to ask um, now our, our, our final question, uh, which sure. is kind of the signature question we ask uh, on this podcast, which is if you were czar for a day, what would you do to prepare America for the possibility of a zombie, or, or maybe not even necessarily a zombie, but kind of a non-traditional, asymmetrical, unexpected type attack? Huh, that is an interesting question. Um, you know, I think one of the things I would actually do was an idea that actually popped up initially during the Bush administration, and I don't know if it ever got implemented, but I think would actually be a great way of sort of developing intel or, or, you know, expectations about future threats, which was, I think initially there was a proposal uh, somewhat soon after the 9-11 the attacks that, you know, intelligence analysts and the intelligence community create almost an auction market um, for where you could buy and sell, uh, you know, the probability that there was going to be a future attack in Pakistan or the United States or what have you, um, kind of like the Iowa electronic market for politicians. Um, and, you know, this was scotched when it was originally proposed because the, the optics of it looked horrible. You know, you've got intelligence analysts making bets on whether or not there will be an attack. That seems not terribly nice. Um, but that said, there was a reason to do this, which was that very often the auction market, the prediction markets, actually do a halfway decent job of, you know, pretty much sort of summarizing the state of play about a particular campaign or about a particular event. I think that might actually be one way, if you could include both sort of uh, non-governmental you know, uh, intelligence analysts as well as governmental intelligence analysts, it would actually be a nice sort of way in which you could you know, detect a harbinger of you know, increased anxiety about a particular area. Um, for example, I think if that had been in place prior to the revolution in, in Tunisia and Egypt, you might have started seeing an uptick 
um, because you had you know various non-governmental people saying, look, this, the the Arab Middle East is about to blow. Um, and by doing that, I think you would have actually had a, a way at least, or at least one way of getting at seeing whether or not a, a situation or a particular policy problem is in fact going to blow up. Yeah, that's an interesting point. A few years ago when the swine flu came out, uh, the Mexican government and the Pan-American Health Organization were a little slow on the draw to deal with it. Right. But there were some outside private sector organizations that were watching the increase in noise from Mexico for um, unexplained viral diseases, and right. those people predicted a problem there. Right, and Google, I think, does this as well, and they, they sort of see upticks in various searches and so forth. So that's another way of, of doing this. But I think in some ways the, the having the auction market for the intelligence analysts is sort of another way of getting at it, and that might actually be, be taken more seriously by the federal government. Of course, the problem with it is that you're telling the federal government that the thirty-odd billion dollars we spend on intelligence is less valuable than a couple of people on a wiki prediction site. Well, the way I think about it is, in some ways, you know, I'm a baseball fan, and the way I think about this is that it's sort of a marriage. It's a way to marry what would be considered traditional scouting, and let's sort of talk about traditional intelligence that way with sort of saber metrics, which is one of the, the sort of new tools out there. The idea that you can use statistics of in a sophisticated way to sort of evaluate the value of a baseball player, I think you can do the same thing with regard to intelligence. Uh, well, on that interesting note about intelligence and baseball, we'll have to leave it. This week actually is opening week um, of the 2011 baseball season. Uh, do you have a prediction, Dan, for who's going to win? If it's a zombie team or a non-zombie team will win it all this year? I'm a Red Sox fan, and, you know, they they look like they have a pretty strong team, which, of course, scares me because I don't like it when they're the preseason favorites. Um, so, but that said, I, th I think I'll go with the Sox this year. All right, great. Well, we're going to leave it on that. Thanks, Dan, for joining us. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast on new books in public policy with Dan Dresner, Theories of International Politics and Zombies. Dan gave a very funny performance, talked about his tongue-in-cheek book about international politics, zombies, and why he uh, thought it was worthy as a professor at uh, the Fletcher School at Tufts in Boston to write about this subject of zombies, and I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Tevi Troy, your host, and tune in next time for another public policy book and discussions on new books in public policy. Thank you.